You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, my co-host, actually doing co-hosting duties this week, Paul Doroshenko. Co-hosting duties? I came to check on your car. Yeah, but you also found some topics for us. I planned on going to the Richmond office and calling you up to do it so we had the best quality recording and then you have uh, I have problem a with your car. problem with a car. I have a problem with a bird. I have a problem with everything. I don't want to go to court tomorrow. I just want to lie in my bed with the blankets over my head so nothing else can go wrong. Well, your car problem's not that big of a deal now, and the bird problem appears to be two-thirds resolved, so I think it's time for the podcast, and we've yes. got a full <laughs> podcast this week, uh, so where do you want to start? Well, let's start with the big news in British Columbia, driving law. We talked about it a couple weeks ago, ICBC making uh, cyclists and other vulnerable passive road users pay for the consequences of the accidents that they're involved in when they're injured and the vehicles are damaged and ICBC doing their like nasty thing of assigning blame to to people who don't have insurers to protect them. Yeah. So, uh, you know, of course that story came out a few weeks back or a month or so back with the uh, individual who had uh, an accident and was badly injured and it was partially his fault and he got a $3,600 bill for the damage to the car. And, you know, I think typically you are covered in those cases if you have a car and you've got insurance on a car that you insured but um, this person apparently did not, and then, you know, consequently ended up with this bill. And talk about bad PR for the uh, for the government, because, of course, it's the government-run insurance company. Everybody in B.C. can only buy their basic insurance from the government-run insurance company. And um, this, uh, you know, we have a desire generally overall to encourage more people to get on their bikes uh, or to be walking rather than being in their cars. And getting a bill for $3,600 in those circumstances is um, was a little rich. Yeah. So now they're no longer going to make people pay. Well, yeah. I mean, basically. The, the, the NDP in British Columbia were the ones who introduced ICBC in the early 70s. And so we have got an NDP government and they were badly embarrassed. And yeah. um, so now... Not just now, badly embarrassed, but it was just like a bad look for ICBC. Like it totally looked like they were using their whole whole Goliath thing versus David, like they were exploiting people. Um, it looked greedy. It looked unfair. It just, you know, you don't want to get the public's confidence by making it look like exactly what you're trying to do, which is keep every dirty little dollar in your grubby little hands. Well, and the, uh, you know, the option would be to make cyclists get insurance, which is ridiculous. Uh, you know, what they probably should you do. You know is, how is, I feel about that option. Yeah, you think cyclists should have license plates and insurance. I mean, I would think it would be great if you could identify cyclists because cyclists have done some pretty awful things that I've seen over the years, including riding up beside my car and hitting my car with something. 
for no reason that's discernible, but just because the uh, when people seem to be when they're on their bikes, they persuade themselves that they're morally superior to others. Yes. Uh, but the in any event, the um, nobody wants to go through that effort. I mean, the whole point of being able to get on your bike is the freedom to be able to just get on your bike. You're free out there on the roads. I'm free. And a lot of times free out there on the free. roads means you don't necessarily abide by all the rules of the road and you run the odd stop sign and sometimes you get in an accident, but you're at so much more risk than the person in the car. And Anyway, so there's nobody wants to have bikes compelled to get license plates and buy insurance, but you think that maybe ICBC could just say, you know what, everybody in BC has insurance on a bike. And if you get in an well, accident... That, that is basically what they're doing now. Yeah. They're also going to pay for injuries. Well, yeah, but they also should make you pay, I think. I don't think it needs to be the whole amount. I think you might have to pay a deductible or something if you have an at-fault accident. Something to discourage people yeah. from... Uh, yeah, because now, now the pedestrians and the cyclists have all the power. I know. I mean, Like, you want... Fuck, you want... You want to not have to work for a little bit? Just get hit by a car. Yeah, no, ride your bike like an asshole. Get hit by a car. Yeah. Um, the uh, or run into a car. You know, we say that uh, facetiously, but the, this will happen. Like, of it's not it going to be a major thing. It's not going to be massive amounts of fraud, but there will be people who deliberately get hit by cars to get that sweet ICBC Skrilla that they didn't have to pay for. Of course, it'll happen. And I think if people are at fault, there should be some consequence like a uh, paying $200 deductible or something like that uh, but right now as it looks like uh, you know it, it may be on an ad hoc basis but they're going to uh, at least for now they're indicating that uh, yeah you can uh, cause a collision and you're not going to get the bill for it gotta love the pendulum swing yep you know public pressure we'd better do the exact opposite not a sensible middle yep uh, well, yeah. a typical government Move, I guess. Yeah. Um, especially, uh, you know, when it's, again, ICBC is their baby. Yes. So, that's that. Quick update. Yep. Resolved. Update. Resolved. Um, another now. thing that we need to talk about is a decision from the, um, the BC Supreme Court. Very interesting case. So, this one I had actually on our radar to talk about when the conviction decision came out. It's the case of uh, Regina and Heth Clems. Um, it's a dangerous driving causing death case. Oh, this um, is the one that was prosecuted by Rob McGowan. Yes. A very skilled prosecutor in the Valley. How did you know? I read the case. Oh, well, probably because we were going to talk about it and we never ended up talking about it. Yeah, so we can talk about it now. Yeah, so after he was uh, unsuccessful at trial... Um, it was put over for sentencing, and sentencing was done last week. And at the sentencing hearing, um, a constitutional challenge was filed to the provisions of the criminal code that would make a conditional sentence unavailable for dangerous driving causing death. So rather than actual jail, you go to house arrest. Yes. Um which, Serve your jail sentence at home. Look. And in a lot of cases, that would make perfect sense to me. That would be the happy middle because you have people who are usually not prolific offenders who pose a, you know, risk of... Most of the people who are charged with driving offenses... Normal um, folks. Uh, ...either impaired or dangerous driving are not bad people. They're not like, They're not people who are like predators on society or anything like that. Um, they are deterred by the the incident. 
Yep. Um, you know, most people. Yeah. And this guy had like a tragic tale. He was 22 when this happened. He's 26 oh, now. Yeah, yeah. He has a six-year-old son and he's very, very involved as a father. He works as a welder. Um, self-employed. He's got his own welding company. Yeah. yeah. Self-employed with two, two employees working for him. And when he was a kid, uh, he was sexually abused by his father's girlfriend's children. He was in foster care. Um, his mom, like, abandoned him. Um, and so he was taken in by his uncle. He was supporting himself from age 17 on. He really turned it around, becoming yeah. a welder and having that business. But he also and was. a good dad. But he was also prohibited from driving at the time. Yes. So he uh, has a bad driving record. No criminal record. But uh, he got three driving infractions from when he was a young person. Yeah. And then as an adult, uh, he had three violations on the same day, um, got a one-month driving prohibition for that, and then in 2016, got another driving prohibition for three months. In 2017, he got an excessive speeding ticket, when, December 2017, a regular speeding ticket, February 2018, a speeding ticket, March 2018, speeding ticket. You get the pattern. Yeah. So he's had multiple driving prohibitions, and um, obviously that is is aggravating. So the court agreed to do something, and this is an interesting procedure that that doesn't get discussed very much about what happens when you make a constitutional challenge. Well, there was alternates provided here, right? Well, it was that the court should determine whether or not a CSO would be an appropriate sentence first before deciding the constitutional question. Because yeah. if they weren't going to impose a CSO, then the question is moot. Yes. Which is an interesting, like safeguard because you don't have to do all the constitutional heavy lifting if you just do the sentencing and the judge is like i'd never give this guy a cso anyway yep <laughs> it's well kind of I mean, like, it makes sense um uh, but it doesn't really you know it's the court's not providing clarity in the law but again it's a superior level court this isn't at the court of appeal so it's not no it's not something you need to do well and this was the this was the trial level court for yep. this offense so Unfortunately for Mr. Heth Clems, he was not uh, found to be a suitable candidate for a CSO on the basis of largely the fact that he did not have a driver's license at the time because he was prohibited. He was riding a motorcycle, which he did not possess a license to operate in any event. Um, and he was speeding, which is kind of something that he sees. But that was the offense. Pattern. Right. right. But it's still, it yeah, was a pattern, a pattern of conduct yeah. that makes a CSO inappropriate. Yeah. Because he's not, you know, we're not talking about an aberrant um, behavior. We're talking about like a, it's seemingly this person's norm. Yeah. So. So if he was out in the public on a CSO, he'd probably keep speeding. Yeah. Yeah. So. So unfortunately he went to jail. He and, uh, went to jail for tough. 12 months. Yeah, so Long that's time. the end of that business. Yeah. These guys get laid off. Very sad. Um, it is sad. It's tragic. His background was really tragic, and his background was making me feel that he should have got the CSO. Um, the fact that he was driving while prohibited was the reason I thought that he 
didn't get a CSO, which is important when you think about drive while prohibited cases because, and driving while prohibited, because what are you doing when you're driving while prohibited? You're, you're saying, I don't, I don't acknowledge the law and I don't give a damn what they think about it. I'm just going to, you know, disregard the law and drive. And uh, that there's the problem. That there is the problem. Yep. So there you go. All right. And now that we have those cases out of the way, we have... It's just like the case law, case law roundup. Case, so impaired driving, case some, law roundup. Uh, had some fairly interesting uh, cases that came out of Ontario in April. And I just read impaired driving cases when they come out. No, and, uh, no life, man. Yep. So the first one I want to tell you about, these are ASD cases. And that's why I thought they were interesting because they apply also in the the same law applies in the immediate roadside prohibition scheme here in B.C., and we deal with lots of approved screening device cases. So the first one I want to talk about is Karina Artuanian, which was uh, released. It was uh, from the court in Guelph, and it was released uh, April 14th. And in this case, uh, Karina Artuanian was pulled over by a police officer and subject to an approved screening device demand. And she went to blow, and she blew six times, and she was just pretending. She was just pretending. And on the seventh time, it was just sort of an outright refusal, and I'm not going to try anymore. And so the police officer at the time, Officer Bigger, uh, arrests her um, and uh, and puts her in the back of the police car, gives her a cell phone, and says, look, if you want, you can call your lawyer, uh, you know, informs of her, her of her 10B rights, and tries to facilitate that right at the roadside. Now, we don't see that that often. There's nope. uh, reasons that the police have uh, asserted in the past, like they're scared that people are going to phone the Hell's Angels and show up, and which is like <laughs> so, so unlikely, um, you know, or that they won't phone a lawyer. But she did phone a lawyer, got her lawyer of choice on the phone, and uh, got off the phone and said, come on, please let me blow. The lawyer just told me I should blow, blow, blow. I was jerking around before. Please let me blow. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, she was charged with ASD refusal. Of course, the officer refused to let her blow again. And we've seen this many times in British Columbia. And I I can tell you right now, in uh, 22 years of being a, um, uh impaired driving uh, lawyer, I've never lost a uh, ASD refusal case. I've always found some reason to explain to the prosecutor why it shouldn't proceed or I've won. Uh, but in this case, uh, we've seen these cases where uh, people have said, no, and then phoned and changed their mind uh, and um, not got anything out of it. I mean, I haven't lost them because I've negotiated them out, but we've lost them certainly uh, in uh, immediate roadside prohibition context. Um, and lots of people have back in the day when we used to be able to get those decisions. But in this decision, um, the court concluded that uh, there should have been a, a last chance. Yes. And there's actually a reference to like... I. Pretty sure this is a BC case, Tinkalik? Yeah. I remember this from like, oh no, it's an Ontario case. But it's it's a last chance case, very old case. Um, yeah, these are all Ontario cases because I remember all of this law developed in Ontario. Right, okay. Well, it goes back to like the inception of this. It goes back to 1989 and yeah. it is actually cited with approval. And there's a really great line that's extracted in this judgment um, from... Tinkaluk, that I think puts it really nicely, um, where the judge says, uh, uh, section 235, which is the refusal section, is drastic legislation interfering with the usual rule against self-incrimination. 
I do the not old old refusal section. Yeah, I do not think it unreasonable for a layperson or indeed anyone unskilled in criminal law at first to react negatively to an invitation to give the police incriminating evidence. I cannot imagine that Parliament intended to make such a refusal followed almost immediately by an assent criminal. Yeah, and that's the reason that in BC, so often when it's these circumstances, the Crown looks for some sort of other way to resolve it. But Paul. You and I would get convicted if we went, now I'm not blowing. Actually, yeah, let me try. Yeah. (laughs) Convicted. Well, I know. Uh, That would happen, and that's true. Skilled in criminal law. (laughs) Because uh, uh, there has been cases where lawyers... um, Yeah. um, So, yeah. Uh, Where where lawyers knew better, uh, didn't need the right to counsel in order to make that decision. But, yeah, I mean, you know, a person who... um, asks to talk to a lawyer, talks to a lawyer right away, hangs up the phone and says, lawyer told me to try and blow, please let me try and blow. Uh, you know, it's not unreasonable for the police to do it. But you can see the difficult situation for the police because they're trained that, okay, once the refusal's complete, that's it. Yeah. Um, you know, we just deal with the paperwork and you're out of here. But, you know, like that's, it's, what is the purpose of the ASD refusal um, provisions? It is to encourage people to provide a sample. I mean, the act of not providing a sample is hardly, like, morally horrible. It is to try and equip the police to be able to conduct these investigations. Um, and it's a huge, huge threat, but it's, a, a, you know, of a criminal conviction and, a, and serious consequences and long driving prohibition and fine and everything. It's a huge, huge threat. But what would happen if you made it like a lesser threat? Like if you made the punishment half of what a impaired driving conviction is, then oh, everybody would refuse. But it's double what the impaired driving yeah. conviction well, is. Well, it's double now. Wasn't always. Wasn't then. No, wasn't then. Wasn't until December eighteenth, twenty eighteen. Thank you, Jody Wilson Raybould. Um, but I thought <laughs> while we're on that topic, um, this has to some extent been imp- been applied in BC um, in the IRP scheme, although it doesn't seem to be well followed. So it's nice to have a good judgment from Ontario uh, applying the same logic from this year, and it was a. Uh, was it an appellate? No, 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 no. no. That was the trial court. Okay. Yeah, but it's um, you know it's a well reasoned decision, so it's going to stand. There's no reason for that to go away. For those lawyers out there listening, things that the BC case law has said that you should take into account if there is like a like a last chance, last chance request. Um, there are a number of factors: the explanation given to the person about the testing procedure, evidence or lack of evidence of their efforts to provide a sample, the amount of time during which this was conducted. It's got to be close in time. You'll never pull it off if it's like. Well, in this case, it was later. twenty minutes. It was twenty-one really? minutes. Yeah, it was twenty-one wow. minutes, and the judge said that's still. But she was in the back of the car. Well, it's from the time that the uh, arrest and everything. I mean, everything is sort of. There's no dilly dallying. Yeah, right. Like it's a continuous transaction. Yeah, yeah. Right. But if you if you say no, and then twenty minutes later, you say, you know, when I change my mind, can yeah, I blow again? That's not going to. The other thing is, there's a you know this major intervening aspect, which the person is that the person talked to somebody who advised them to blow, and yeah. she you know, yeah, had, had earlier feigned the attempts and then said, no, I'm not going to blow. Uh, number of tests attempted, whether the accused was warned it was a criminal offense to refuse. Because if you don't even know it's a criminal offense, that's exactly what the court says in Tinkaluck. Like, how can you, you know, you're not versed in criminal law. How can you be expected to know this? 
Um, whether you're told the consequences of refusal, whether you were warned it was your last chance to provide a sample, and the time delay, if any, between the arrest for failure or refusal and the request for another attempt to blow. It's really not... Uh, <laughs> it's still a fairly open test. Um, and I think it sort of also depends on how legit you are, but it does make it difficult for the police to to deal with those cases. However, if you're a police officer and somebody gets off the phone and they're still there and you're still at the roadside and it's in the back seat and you haven't, you know, the tow truck hasn't come yet. Uh, I, paperwork's and, not and written. Paperwork's up. not or isn't signed, hasn't been served. Um, I think it's uh, it's uh, would probably be looked upon not well if you refuse to allow the person um, to try one more time in those circumstances. So that's that one. Now, what can't you do? Well, well that's the thing. This is, I, I, you know, I feel sorry for everyone named Karen uh, because of the Karen um, thing in the last few years. However, this is sort of the, the Karen defense uh, not working, but it, the person's not named Karen. It's Calvin. Um, so maybe that's the uh, the feminine Karen. Calvin no, Brumsley. Chad. Chad. <laughs> sorry, Chad. Yeah. Oops. Um this is a provincial court of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, a judicial center of Corner Brook in the case of Regina and Brumsey, which came out April 13th. Uh, and in this case, what happens is uh, Calvin Brumsey is pulled over uh, and has been pulled over apparently a number of times. Um, and <laughs> three, two, three times in two months. Yeah. And is of the view that uh, he's being harassed by the police. And, and there's lots of people who feel this way. You know, they get pulled over for whatever reason. Uh, they're young. They're brown. Uh, the police pulled them over once and, and sort of decided that they're going to target them. This happens, unfortunately, in Canadian law. Mm -hmm. um, this is one of the things where you can just pull somebody over. Uh, to check their license and, and uh, registration or pull them over to check their um, check their uh, sobriety. Uh, and so people uh, are subject to this and the police unfortunately do it. And this fellow is pulled over um, and um, is subject to a uh, approved screening device demand and it was considered a lawful demand. Um, the court uh, reviewed that. But ultimately, uh, Mr. Brumsey said, I'm not going to blow until I can speak to a supervisor because I think I'm being harassed by the police. I've been pulled over three times in a two-month period. Um, and so um, he said, I'm not going to blow until I can speak to a supervisor. In other words, I'm not, I'm, I want to speak to the manager first. <laughs> um, and uh, the court said that, uh, you know, that's, that's a refusal. A, you have, you have yeah. no entitlement, obviously, in law to speak to the manager. Yep to speak to a supervisor. And we have seen this in the past. We have seen this exact scenario before uh, in the immediate roadside prohibition scheme where people are pulled over and they say, I'm not going to blow unless I get to talk to the, the supervisor. When Where's I, your supervisor? When I read the case, uh, at first I was like, well, what crazy lawyer agreed to run this ridiculous, you're allowed to talk to the supervisor before you blow argument? But Paul, yeah, Mr. Brumsey was self-represented. Yeah, I know. I that. <laughs> that's that's a total Karen move. Well, he won the impaired. Um, of course, it was an ASD demand, so there was no, yeah, no, uh, not enough symptoms of impairment to lead the police officer with the conclusion that um, he was impaired in his ability to drive a motor vehicle 
uh, on a balance of probabilities. So it's almost impossible when an ASD demand is made to convict somebody of impaired driving at the same time. So, I mean, he was acquitted of the uh, impaired, but I guess he felt that he was going to be uh, acquitted of the of the refusal on the basis of the, I didn't get to talk to the supervisor defense. And that's unfortunate. Uh, but it is, uh, I can say that this is actually an interesting case because I've never seen this before that I can recall. There's like 40 cases here cited and cases considered. Uh, and I know most of them and I don't recognize them as a supervisor case. So I don't know, uh, if he, uh, you know, what, what led to him thinking that that would be the appropriate, uh, argument. Um, who knows? Maybe he's a lawyer. You never know. He, you never know. Uh, but I feel like a lawyer, lawyer would probably not. hire somebody because now he's got a criminal record for refusal. Yeah. So, uh, do you want to talk about the last one? Um, no, I don't think we have time. I think we should. We've okay. got time. Look okay. at the, look at the time. We can do it. Okay. Uh, so the last case is in also an ASD case. Uh, and this one is also an ASD refusal. Yes. But the question in this case was really whether the demand was valid. And this case highlights something that actually I was dealing with in a, in a court case earlier this week in argument, where a lot of what happens when you, as a police officer, are making an ASD demand and forming your grounds to believe that somebody has alcohol in their body, a lot of what happens is often things that can't be preserved, like what you smell and what you see before you pull over the vehicle. And unless you have contemporaneous video recording, you can't capture all of that. And unless you have contemporaneous notes, there's no good record of necessarily what you smell. Well, the contemporaneous notes in any event, I mean, you could fabricate them as a police officer. I know every police officer, whoever listens to this and say, no police officer would ever do that. But no, wait, you know. And yet in this trial I was doing earlier this week, that's exactly what the officer did and admitted to. Yes. I went back and I filled in my notes afterwards by watching the video. Yeah. <laughs> okay, buddy. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Is, uh, not the first time I've heard that either. I know. It's disturbing. Um, so this officer, uh, allegedly sees, um, this person drive at a slow rate of speed, make a wide turn and mount the curb. Uh, and then he goes to the car. He asks the person, the driver, have you been drinking? He says, no, he smells cologne, which is obviously a masking agent because we all know that people only wear cologne to mask an odor of liquor on their breath, just like they only chew gum and smoke cigarettes for those reasons as well. Um, and he makes the ASD demand. Uh, the person provides a sample, registers a fail reading. The refusal actually happens later at the police detachment. And an interesting issue arose at trial that never ended up having to get dealt with on the appeal. So answer not given. Um, so the question was whether or not the officer had grounds on the basis of the driving behavior coupled with this masking agent of Cologne in the car. Which is fascinating um, because we have seen, um, now this case, it's important to note the date of it. It was July 17th, 2018. So this was the previous version of the criminal code. Uh, reasonable suspicion of alcohol in the body was the same, but there was no mandatory demand provisions back then. Mm -hmm. But in any event, we see police in BC still using the reasonable suspicion demand all over the place. 
And since the law changed, when there's two different types of demands, one that does not require a reasonable suspicion and one that does, we see police continuing to use the reasonable suspicion demand, but not reasonably as we have in this case. Yes. So the masking agent, does that lead you to reasonably conclude that a person has alcohol in their body? Reasonably suspect. Reasonably suspect. Um, the, uh, you know, we see police officers saying, well, he was chewing gum. Therefore, I concluded that he, you know, I suspected that he had alcohol in his body and I made a suspicion demand. But this case, <laughs> the officer was also like lying. Well, the, exaggerating. The trial exaggerating. judge found that he was exaggerating, that this erratic driving that he'd complained of, he actually qualified as being like a turn to avoid an object in the road. Yes. Okay, so good driving. But we've seen that. We've seen that. We've had cases, IRP cases, lots of that. Numerous cases. I once had a case where a client was given the ASD demand because he was wearing a hockey jersey and alcohol is served at hockey games. Yes, I remember that one. Yeah. And you're just like, but... Doesn't mean he drank <laughs> at a hockey Doesn't game. Doesn't mean he was How'd even he at a hockey sus- game. How do you have a reasonable suspicion that he's got alcohol in his body on the basis of the fact that he was wearing a hockey jersey? Just, uh, yeah, and lots, lots I get, I've seen several times where they accidentally hand their health card instead of their driver's license. Which looks the same they in BC. fucking identical. Um, the officer also in uh, this one case um, said that uh, the accused displayed violent behavior and there was no violent behavior. Uh, there was also no reading of the charter rights of warnings when the officers said the charter rights and warnings were read. Um, so they basically just rejected the evidence of the officers. The court rejected the evidence of the officers and found that the officers weren't truthful. Um, which is unfortunately something we never really get to challenge in the IRP scheme, but it's a good confirmation of basically the same circumstances as we saw in Webster, which was that case I argued back in about 2006 or something like that, um, where Mr. Webster was driving in a manner that seemed wrong to the police officer, uh, described driving that I think was a little bit exaggerated, and he had an odor of liquor about him, um, and that was not enough to lead to a uh, reasonable suspicion of alcohol in the body. It led to a demand, but that was not good enough. So this is a sort of confirmation of that. Um, and I like the fact that, once again, a masking agent does not lead to something that could be used as a masking agent. Police officers have made demands to people in the last two years that I've seen for smoking for chewing gum, yep. for having anything else to drink in their vehicle that's not alcohol, yep. and for having cologne on them. Yep. Uh, and in all those circumstances, um, you know, they were unlawful demands. But of course, if they provide a sample in BC, uh, it's uh, still going to be admissible Ooh, and it's still going to lead bad. to uh, uh, fairness is out the window. Yeah. So there you go. Time to move on, Kyla, to the... The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Ridiculous driver of the week. 
And this ridiculous driver comes to us all the way from White Court, Alberta. Whole province over. Yeah. Um, This is a crazy thing that people do. But uh, there was a man who approached a Honda Civic on his property to discuss something with the driver. Well, the fact that it was on his property, apparently. I guess. Okay. It doesn't really matter what they were going to discuss because the driver decided to run into the man who jumps or lands. Somehow ends ends up on the roof of the Honda Civic, which then takes off for six kilometers through White Court with the man clinging to the roof. At uh, like on on a highway road, like a, yeah, it was a, like on yeah. Range Road One Two Three C on Highway Thirty Two. If anybody here is familiar with White Court, there you go. Um, and uh, somehow the only uh, reason he uh, escapes that is because uh, um, apparently the the fellow drove past the police detachment, and the uh, the person on the roof of the car was dislodged or fell off at that point, ended up in the hospital, is apparently okay, uh, but um, how many kilometers can you drive with somebody hanging onto your car, and how terrifying is it for that poor person stuck on the car? Yeah, don't don't try this at home, kids. Well, like, it's pretty don't. common. I was uh, looking recently at death cases in, in uh, car circumstances, and it's so often that somebody is like on a car, hanging out the sunroof, things that I did, you know, when I was 16 with my friends, um, throwing our friends out of the Volkswagen van into a snowbank as we're driving by at 25 kilometers an hour. Um, amazed that that uh, more people don't die from these things. But yeah, um, don't drive with somebody on the roof of your car. Yeah. And don't do it right in front of the RCMP <laughs> Well, I mean, they, they didn't catch him then. It was only yeah. like days later, but... Uh, they did catch him. I mean, you know, I'm sure they had lots and lots of video if he drove that far. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our podcast. If you need to get in touch with us, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or you can give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. Driving Law.